0: Yo, welcome to the Uncomfortable is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where I get to chat with interesting people who inspire me, and hopefully you, to get out of our comfort zones through their thoughts and ideas. Today is a little bit special. It is episode number 50, Um, so I just want to take a little bit of a minute to have a chat about a few things before we jump into the episode. First up, a few thank yous. Thank you to everyone who supported me, uh, so far through this process. Um, it's been, it's been awesome. Thanks for the messages of this, of support. Thanks for the comments on the episodes, the emails, uh, the Facebook messages, the Instagram messages, even people tweeting. Um, it's been, it's been incredible. Thank you everyone for, for sharing out the episodes. It's been, it's been brilliant as well. Uh, just thanks for subscribing to the podcast on your, on your favorite podcast app or on iTunes and, and leaving reviews for those that have done it. Uh, it's, yeah, been, been amazing feedback and really sort of, uh, motivational to kind of keep me going with this as well. And just, yeah, thanks for listening. To all the episodes as well. It's uh, it's pretty cool to think that people are just kind of tuning into conversations that I'm having. Um, I hope you've got as much out of it as I have. There's a couple of specific people that I want to thank as well. I want to thank my brother Jeremy Desmond for his uh, just his musical talent. Uh, when I said, Hey, I want to make a podcast and I want, uh, I'm going to need some theme music for it. He jumped at the chance to, to make it. And, uh, I really enjoy the, the theme music to the show. I think it's, I think it's awesome in it and it encapsulates the whole sort of uncomfortable vibe of it. I want to thank rich fortune for his, his support, but also for his it knowledge as well. And, uh, helping me out with any kind of questions that I have along the way it's been it's been awesome too thanks rich. I want to thank my lovely wife Julia for giving me the time and the space and the support to do this um, if I didn't have that uh, the podcast probably wouldn't be happening. I want to thank the people that have com- connected with me with the guests that we've had on the show as well. it's been uh, it's been awesome too. So I'm not sure where the next 50 episodes are going to go or what's going to happen in them. Um, but I've loved having and learning from these conversations that I've had so far. And I hope that you guys have as well. Um, and I'm planning to have many more of them. But I think as well, this this podcast and having these conversations has helped me get better at going deeper in, in conversations uh, off the mic. Um, but also asking myself better questions as well about kind of what it is that I'm doing and, and how I'm staying in my comfort zones. Uh, but most of all, I want to thank the guests that we've had on the show. Um, without them giving up their time, obviously this, this show wouldn't happen or it would be looking completely different and probably a little bit more boring with just me talking all the time. Um, and with that being said, today's guest is amazing. Um, I've got my mate Alex Asher back on the show. Now, way back almost a year ago, uh, Alex was one of the opening episodes. He was actually episode two, um, but he was one of the launch episodes. So it's, it's pretty cool that we get him back for episode number 50. Um, it's a nice sort of, uh, as Nick Morrison would say, kind of a nice circular model. So Last episode with Alex, um, we talked about his run from the Cape, Cape Reinga down to Cook Strait. Now today we're chatting about the return journey from Cook Strait up the west coast to Cape Reinga. So today's chat includes the development of ideas, including sharing them out with people. Um, And Alex is of the opinion that if you share the Uh, Share your ideas out. You won't miss out on the opportunities for people to help you out to bring this idea into reality. Um, And that's something that I've learned along the way with the podcast as well. We talk about the differences between the East Coast run for him and this time going up the West Coast uh, and the different challenges of that. We talk about the friendly... Friendliness, the helpful nature, and the hospitality of all the West Coasters. Alex fills us in on being the first person to swim the Kaipara Harbour, uh, which is the largest harbour in the Southern Hemisphere, um, 8 k's across at its narrowest point. Um, and it's kind of infamous for its strong currents and uh, the number of great white sharks that are hanging out in there as well. And Alex also talks about the empowerment of doing something really, really hard and having to overcome the mental and the physical blocks from that. Alex is a pretty inspirational guy and he tells an amazing story. So I really enjoyed this conversation and I took a a whole heap away from it and I'm sure that you guys will too. So thanks for being on board for these 50 episodes hope you stick around for the next 50. Make sure to share this one out with your mates and thanks for getting uncomfortable with me and Alex today. Alex, Alex. Uh, welcome back to the Uncomfortable is OK podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's awesome to be back.
0: Oh, yeah, mate. And I was just having a read through the notes of uh, that I'd made from our last conversation, and actually it was a year ago tomorrow that we spoke. Oh, Really? which is, yeah it's yeah crazy. it's kind of a nice yeah. nice circular thing and yeah for for the people that uh, are listening to this episode and haven't listened to the first one Alex was the second guest on the show um and I think mate you'll probably come out as episode number 50 here as well so yeah a nice nice milestone <laughs> yeah
1: exactly particularly since that was actually uh I think almost the. This- First time I sort of publicly sort of talked about it.
0: Mm. Uh, so, yeah, good times. Yeah, 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 it was, it was pretty cool. Um, so we're here today to kind of predominantly, I think, have a chat about your sort of uh, straight to Cape um, this time. So f- your run from Wellington to Cape Reinga. Um, but for the people that haven't listened to the first episode with you, mate, or don't know you, can you kind of give us a little bit of background about Alex's story? Sure. Um,
1: I guess that story starts almost seven or eight years ago when I was um, over in Germany at the time and I was doing a bit of travel. I'd come through India and spent some time in Mexico and um, I was looking for my own, I guess, you know, unique adventure and also just become really aware, particularly going through places like Mexico and India, just hyper aware of what you know what damage we're doing particularly to our coastlines Uh, when I was in Mexico and just one of the heartbreaking things is just to see uh, what should be beautiful isolated beaches Um, but unfortunately they're they're really covered in in trash and plastic and that story just keeps on getting echoed around the world and uh, it really put me towards something that I could do and so I sort of combined that by starting this this idea of running down the entire east coast of the North Island from Cape Ranger to Wellington, and you know I hadn't done much uh, running other than sort of being a bit of a weekend warrior here and there, um, but I sort of you know put the put my little mini deer out there. You know if I can stick with this for a week, then I'll 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 try and finish it by the end of the year, and uh, I ended up starting that run from Cape Ranger to Wellington, uh, I think it was in December 2011, and over the following two months, it was 63 days, I ran 2,300 kilometres or so, including I think about 67 kilometres of swimming, Uh, just a variety of other things that sort of came out of that that journey, including you know, an injury forcing me to, to swim some, some large stretches of, of north, uh, Northland coast and finished up in February 2012 um, with, a, with a great story and a great adventure behind me and also a real amazing appreciation of, of the coastline. And that's where I, I'd actually run for Sustainable Coastlines then, mainly as a, a supporter. And since that time was invited to the board uh, of sustainable coastlines and have been with them ever since for the last five or six years, really. And here we are after um, the straight decay, which I'm sure we'll talk about.
0: Yeah, cool. Um, And if people want more of an insight into that run and what it was like, then yeah, jump back and have a listen to the last time me and Alex spoke. Um, But mate, I mean you'd kind of had this idea in the back of your mind for a little while that you wanted to do the return journey so you wanted to come from Cook Strait back up the west coast of the North island to Caprianga um kind of when did you when did you start to see that kind of coming to fruition and thinking hey this is this is something that's definitely going to happen
1: yeah I last last year probably around you know very much sort of a january time i thought that there would actually be a time window where that would actually be possible uh, i knew that this was going to be another massive run and another massive commitment but i saw that there there could be a a window to be able to do it in this you know this summer or between 2000 uh, i started in in January this year, so it's 2017. So, yeah, I knew that it was going to take me a good long time to get prepared for this kind of adventure. And, yeah, in January, I sort of started thinking about it. And I, I guess not really talking to many people about it, but just in the back of my mind, going a lot more from a, uh, that'll be nice to do one day to I should do this soon. And then probably March... Uh, or April, I did a, a bit of a mini challenge again. I did a, a big sort of recce trip up in Northland's west coast, just to see what the terrain was like, and I think to reconnect with that passion that I had for, for both running and the coastlines. And by sort of April, I guess, which is now, uh, I was more vocal with and publicly sort of uh, telling friends and family that this was something I wanted to accomplish and once you put it out there that's when you know things start becoming real you have to have to follow through so i guess that follows the journey of the the pre contemplation for the straight to cape
0: yeah how important for you is it to kind of throw ideas out there when you when you have them if you if you're thinking that hey this is something that i want to do is that kind of a an important part of your process or do you often just kind of uh, keep quiet about it and push through until you until you achieve?
1: I think, for me, it's being very clear on what are opportunities that if I don't tell somebody and if I'm not public with them, I won't achieve them, and which are achievements or journeys I can follow that I don't require any external accountability. I have so much internal motivation that I'll just get it done. Uh, With something like the Straight to Cape, running turned out to be 1,200 kilometers. uh, That's something I needed to put out there. I think talking was really important. Um, And I think when you start putting it out there, people are able to help. People are able to give you advice. Uh, You find a whole bunch of people that want to support you on your journey. So that's when it starts to become really important to to vocalize that and to, to let other people know and we're not islands and we also have partners and friends and family that all care about us. So at one stage that, yeah, we've got to, we've got to include them in in that journey.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like your point about the, the offering of help. Um, when you, when you started to throw this idea out there, did kind of, did it attract a whole lot of interesting people that wanted to help you out?
1: It did. It did. Uh, Initially, they were relating to you know, the sustainable coastlines, part of that, that journey. Uh, but then when I had to talk about it, I was also able to talk with you know, potential gear sponsors and, and other people that could help me in that way. Uh, but what was really critical for me is, as well was understanding the terrain. Uh, one of the, the reasons that I was attracted to the West Coast was it was an area that I had very little knowledge of, uh, with the exception of you know, a couple of pinpoints along the map. Uh, that was a really unknown coast to me. So talking to people allowed people to go, oh, I know somebody there or uh, you know, you might want to consider this or, or that kind of thing. And, and there's so much you don't know until you start talking to people. And, you know, that, that sort of gives them an opportunity to help in whichever way they can.
0: Mm, yeah. And, I mean, that's been a, actually a common theme of people that I've spoken to over the last sort of month or so is that you don't know what you don't know. Um, and if, if people can give you a heads up about it before you actually come across it, it tends to make things so much easier for you.
1: Yeah, it really does. I mean, the Kuiper, uh, we can talk about that a little bit later, but uh, that was a classic example, trying to cross a harbour that had never been crossed. That was super scary um, for so many different reasons. Uh I wouldn't have come up with a plan without having sort of put the idea out there and actually gone for people that had that local knowledge or, and that local knowledge might not be about landscape or terrain. It might be around a subject matter or or whatever it is that your adventure or journey is going to take you.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. And Alex, I mean, what what were the big differences about kind of, planning and implementing this trip on the West Coast compared to the one that you did on the East Coast a few years ago?
1: So the East Coast was, uh, I'd come out of a job and and also I was a bit younger and I had a lot more free time to be able to organise this kind of thing. So there's that component there just in terms of the availability of time. The second thing was the terrain on the East coast was much more familiar with me. And also my network of friends had so many different people on the East coast that I could probably tap on the shoulder if I needed a place to stay. So there was a lot of, lot more safety safe sort of places to go along that way. So that was a lot easier. And so there were more people to ask questions and more people that could help me with the knowledge there. And, Um, but saying that though that was my first time so there was a huge amount of learning in terms of what you actually need to do to run beyond a marathon and how can you run marathon distance every day so there was a huge amount more knowledge of that kind of thing so this time because I'd had the first experience with running the east coast the west coast was more around the terrain uh, land access uh, the weather Um, there are a whole bunch of Parts about the, the West Coast are a lot more challenging than the East Coast. Uh, it's so much more raw and isolated and wild on that coastline. So the t- and also the harbors were so much bigger and uh, you know ferocious in terms of the weather. So there was a lot yeah, just different challenges. Um, and I'm sort of quite happy I did in the order I did in terms of the East Coast first and then the West coast, because uh, yeah, it turned out to be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and for those that don't know, is when you got to those big harbours, you swam across them rather than ran round them, didn't you?
1: Absolutely. So down the East Coast, I'd, I'd followed a similar path. So I'd, I'd swam across the, the harbours. But when we think about them, you know, the, the Waitemata, um, uh, Mount Maunganui, those sorts of harbours, they weren't actually that far to, to go across. Uh, on the west coast area you've got um, some huge harbors and harbors that I don't think either anyone had either swum on before or, or certainly don't them with, with any regularity. So Kafia is Raglan Harbour, there is Aotea Harbour, Monaco Harbour and the Kaipara Harbour, the two big ones. And the Kaipara is actually the second largest harbour in the world or the, the biggest in the southern hemisphere. So yeah, it was the kind of, it, it was sort of stepping up from a Okay, you know, if you can swim a little bit you'll be sweet too. You really like the swimming is possibly the biggest challenge here.
0: Yeah. How did you how did you prep for this trip in terms of kind of uh physically?
1: I I was probably, you know, I was still I was in decent shape, but I, I hadn't really done any long distance running for for quite a while again. It's often these sorts of things sort of you're running distance sort of ebbs and flows. Uh, but, you know, I'm still relatively fit. Uh, but the swimming, I'd ha- I hadn't been in the – well, I probably had been in a pool since my uh, Cape to Strait, the, the East Coast mission, which was five years earlier, six years earlier. So I'd really done almost no swimming since that time. So I had to find a, a local swim school, which was just up the road from me in Kingsland, uh, the Trent Brace Swan School, and yeah, I started in the the beginner slow lane, <laughs> and um, you know by the time I was ready for the mission, you know I was up there with, with with some of the faster people, and you know a lot of that was just hard work and training, trying to get the swimming side of things going, and the running again was was actually really challenging because the first run I did, while I I had probably a lot more knowledge of, well sorry, I had a lot more confidence and not much knowledge, so. I could just sort of throw myself into it. And also I had a lot more free time because at that stage, a big part of that, uh, the prep before the kick straight six years ago, I wasn't working for the three months leading up to it. Whereas this time I was trying to fit you know, huge distances um, and everyday kind of distances. So I was trying to, I was, you know, the aim was actually to be getting to 30, 40 kilometers a day before I even started the uh the mission to try and avoid the the chance of injury or or that that shock to the body, and that was really hard to do with a full time job and and I'm self employed, uh, looking after my own business. So that made it really quite a challenge to be able to put those distances in.
0: Yeah, uh, how did you manage that time?
1: Um, fortunately, the one advantage of a startup is that you you can be more flexible with your hours. So. I would just uh, work later or, or work earlier and, and try and fit the training around that. Uh, the consistency, though, was really, really important. So I think really did have to be quite disciplined to make sure that, that training that training happened.
0: Yeah, yeah. And obviously, it's just not the physical prep um, that you need to do for something like this. There's a lot of sort of uh, logistical stuff and kind of reconnaissance of the of the areas, really. And you, you talked a little bit before about kind of chatting with people up and down the West Coast, but what sort of gear did you need for this trip?
1: Uh, so you've got the
0: obvious stuff, um, for having good
1: shoes. I mean, in the end... It doesn't matter what pair of shoes you, you tend to go for, what brand you go for. It's just that it's comfortable for you. But they become quite expensive if you're buying you know, six or six, six or seven pairs during the year. Um, so a good pair of shoes. Uh, I wore icebreaker um, gear almost the entire journey. That, for me, is a really comfortable uh, clothing. Uh, I just love that it's natural and it's got a great story and it. it sort of fits with, with the message that I sort of really believe by um so that worked really really well for me throughout the whole journey um and but then there was just a lot of logistics i mean i fortunately had a bit of experience from the last one is that it's very important to plan but it's really not important to stick with the plan because things will always change so i remember still spending hours trying to Project where I would be going around the coastline and where I could get around, and which bits I couldn't, and and where I might need land access, and a whole bunch of things. But uh, as I say, like really important to have done that planning, but I knew that I wasn't going to stick to it. And, and as the journey sort of played out, it was quite obvious that my original plan wasn't going to be, it uh, wasn't going to work. So, you know, I think that was a really good learning I learned from the last one, which is have a plan, but know that it's probably almost likely going to change.
0: Yeah, yeah, that pivoting when things uh, start to kind of go awry or in, or in a different way looks a little bit easier for you as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, well, Alex, should we have a bit of a chat about the journey now? So you started off down in Wellington, uh, the 2nd of January, was it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was Monday. Um, so I started in- –
1: yeah, but Exactly where I finished the Cape to Strait. So where I finished that this, this six years earlier I started in Wahine uh, Memorial Park and started there on, on the Monday morning and uh, ran all the way on the first day to a place called Te Kamaru Bay which is you know, just a stunning place uh, right near the the Makara Coast but actually interestingly and probably fitting for the very first day of the journey like it was Incredibly um, hard, hard running uh, surface because of the, the slippery stones everywhere and the sand and, and the rocky terrain. But also, um, Te Kamaro Bay is, is like it's sort of like a hook that um, sort of juts out of the out of the bottom of the North Island, and it's quite clear that most of the plastic in that area seems to sort of filter or, or get stuck in that hook of, of land. So the actual, while the place itself is pretty stunning, it's, it's got probably more plastic per <laughs> per centimetre of beach I've ever seen. So it's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's probably something that, as New Zealanders, we're not that aware of. I mean, you hear about these stories of places overseas that are just kind of covered in, in plastic. But, I mean, if you look closely enough, some of our beaches are as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's getting to a stage which is slightly sad, is that you don't even have to look that hard. I mean, there are fortunately there are a lot of really good people um, in, in places that are you know are quite populous, so that you know people are picking stuff off the beach all the time, and, and it gives that illusion that we don't have much plastic on our beaches. But uh, you know, I can talk about it further, but you know, Northland, for example. Yeah, it's it's not looking good. I mean, there's not a lot of people up there and, and the beaches are starting to clog up with with plastic and and rubbish. It's it's quite it's super sad. Um and you see that there's all these little hotbeds around um our coastline. So I think it's something we need to be very very careful about being complacent with because we have exactly the same risks of becoming overrun by plastic that a lot of other countries do.
0: Mm. Do you wanna do you wanna have a little bit more of a chat about that? Actually, since we've got onto that topic about kind of um, obviously you did this run for uh, did this run for sustainable coastlines to kind of just raise awareness, wasn't it, about some of the issues that are going on at the moment?
1: Yeah, so I think for me it was really important to tap into a a cause that I really believe in. Um, I believe in not just the cause as well, but the people that were really running that. So the team of Sustainable Coastlines, just such great people and they're just so effective at what they do. Um, But one of the things I think is really, um, yeah, I think misunderstood as well is our coastlines are a big reflection of how society is, is working and, while plastic is one side of that, um, one of the areas that I actually was was also very very interested in was our waterways and what an impact um, the way that we're we're using our land and and the way that we're we're treating our our local environment also in the cities. You know, it, it does have a massive impact on our waterways, and those waterways almost, you know, most of them end up in in the sea. So. For me, I've got a very strong connection with the coast because you know I spend so much time there, and and it's just such a precious part of New Zealand. And obviously, we're a coastal nation, so it's it's really important that we look after it. Um, one of the things that I, I guess I'll, I'll sort of fast track to what I what I felt at the end of my journey in terms of sustainable coastlines and where New Zealand sits is yeah, while we do have some incredibly beautiful parts of, of the country and we do have large stretches that are still really undisturbed and, and we do have this this beautiful paradise, uh certainly around almost all of our urban centers, our waterways are a bit of a, a disaster. Um whether it be just the, the pollution that's getting into our waterways, but also the amount of plastic that they just somehow accumulate inside is, is really sad. And and all of those all of that junk gets thrown out into the ocean and then comes back onto our onto our shores. Um, and while you've got you know places like you know even the Wanganui River and Manawatu River which has pollution problems, uh, Northland was yeah it was quite startling how much rubbish is actually washing up on our beaches. And I think just being I think a lot more aware of the currents that are have a big impact on the rubbish that uh, ends up accumulating on our shores. And one of the things that I I felt really strongly at the end of that, and was so inspired as well by the local people who were by almost, without exception, just super devoted to to the coastline and keeping it the paradise that that it should be, but was looking at how we can be more innovative and work with local communities to incentivize people, you know, really good people to still continue picking up trash from, from the beach, even if it's not theirs. Um, And so one of the things that came out of doing both the the raising awareness and and fundraising was that we want to be creating a a pilot where uh, we can actually create sustainable coastlines artwork from the rubbish picked up off the beaches. So one of the things we want to pilot is is whether we can find a more exciting way and a more motivating way to keep people cleaning up our coastline and, and really looking after it from a local point of view. So yeah, that was one of the the big outcomes there was that money. uh, I think I raised probably over over six grand can go towards something. that's a a bit more innovative and and trying to get those local communities in a sustainable way to be able to keep picking up rubbish on the beach, but actually create some meaningful artwork that I think conveys the message that, Hey, look, you know, we're a country um, of coastlines and we're a country that that cares about our environment in a really deep way.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's that's very cool. That's that's pretty fascinating. Um, is that that's kind of started since the uh, since you finished your run, or is that just I kind of still it's on the probably
1: planning? Probably more of a summer a summer initiative. Uh, we're getting close to winter now, but you know, it's going to be about getting uh, in touch with some of these local communities. I mean, fortunately, I just yeah, you know, I, I can talk about the, the hospitality West Coasters all day because they were just such an amazing group of people that I met along the way, but I, you know, I made a lot of connections along that coastline and really hope that uh, Sustainable Coastlines can work with some of these communities and, and find some, some templates that can work not just in New Zealand but, but become a real example for uh, getting local uh, communities backing and supporting the, these cleanup initiatives and, and doing it in a really sustainable, fun way. Awesome.
0: Alex, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift a little bit actually, and kind of touch on a topic that you just talked about. There was the hospitality of the people. You met some uh, some interesting people on your journey up the coast. Yeah, it was just so good.
1: I think one of the just keeping in mind your audience as well. I think one of the messages that I would love to continue to share is um, it wasn't just that they were amazing people, but I think. Knowing your audience and knowing that they might be wanting to maybe embark on their own journey is that when you start something that other people can get behind and other people can think is extraordinary, you're giving them an opportunity to be their best self and throughout the whole west coast, just felt everybody that I met was just their best self and they just provided any kind of help that 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 I needed and I think it was just such a humbling thing to be able to see. You know just these these people that I'd sometimes only met for you know ten seconds you know open their homes up find me boats to cross you know treacherous harbors um, let me stay overnight in in their backs in their backyard or, or let me in for a, for a cup of tea I mean just every place I went went across um, I met great people with incredibly strong values and um, they really I think they 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 had they saw an opportunity to 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 be generous and to be hospitable and and I just will always feel incredibly grateful to have had that experience.
0: Cool. Was that a consistent theme up the whole of the coast?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh one of the things that was really different from my east coast trip to my west coast trip is on the east coast the terrain is a bit nicer and so also Um, it was more practical that I could have a caravan that we would tow behind and I could stand in a caravan. So I was more often than not staying in campsites. And the campsite owners were amazing, really, really good. And same on the West Coast. But the West Coast weather is just so much more severe. And and like it was super windy almost the entire trip. and certainly had my fair share of of headwinds. And um, for that reason, I was often needing or looking out for places to stay. And so I had a lot more opportunity to stay in people's homes or stay in their backyards or, or, or have a lot more of a you know just a really strong connection with, with these with these people. And so yeah, I was I was staying probably I would say seventy percent of the time with local with local people. And ninety percent of them I wouldn't have met except for on that day. So I was often on the road finding somebody to stay with, um, or it would just sort of pop out in in conversation. Or I was in a farm where there was literally nowhere else to go but this one place. So yeah, it it was extreme, and it was just such um, yeah heartwarming adventure in that way.
0: Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. Um, Was do you think that is? because they really resonated with your story or that's just the kind of people that they were? Or a bit of both?
1: Yeah, I would say a bit of both. I think naturally I had a story that resonated with them because I was running up the West Coast for the West Coast in a lot of ways. Secondly, though, I think you could have... I mean, what I would love to say that New Zealanders are exclusive in their hospitality. I imagine if you when in a lot of countries and you were doing something that was for a really you know good cause that they could resonate with, they would probably open their homes in the same way. Um but I, you know, again, I, I think just out of those individuals, they were just really, really great people that I was able to meet and they'd often, you know, know somebody else that was probably of equal um caliber that 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 might let me stay the following night or, or at a few nights time or, or
0: whatever it was. So
1: yeah, I think there was a bit of good fortune there as well.
0: Yeah, so you kind of really just got passed up the line almost.
1: Yeah,
0: sometimes.
1: But I mean, there were just so many occasions where it was literally I was on the I was running on the beach during the day, and and somebody would be like, "Oh my god, that's really I really love what you're up to." And you know, if you want a place to stay, you know, you're welcome. Welcome to Pitch 10. Or I can mean, I tell you a number of different adventures. You know, one was being in a farm, uh, you know, there was a farmer and we were able to stay in, in one of the most beautiful parts of, I'd say, the West Coast, um, just outside their little A-frame um, holiday home in Nukahakuri Bay. Then, you know, we were staying in a little in an uh, empty schoolroom in Taharoa, which is like one of, you know, what so- some people might consider a rough place, but actually was just incredibly hospitable. Uh Um, and then on one occasion uh, just before the Kuiper Harbour crossing uh, I literally met some people that sort of looked, well certainly looked a bit out of place or or, or like how the hell did you get here without a vehicle kind of thing on the beach and then I ended up staying with them that night which was awesome because then they found me the person to uh, take a boat across the Kuiper Harbour which was my number one challenge and probably the one thing that I didn't know how I was going to accomplish so yeah it's just a lot of I think things good luck sort of happens when sort of that preparation and opportunity meets so yeah
0: brilliant and I mean I think while we're on the topic of the of the Kaipara Harbour do you want to tell us the story about that and kind of how how you did that but also kind of I know you had a bit of apprehension around that before you did it as well do you want to talk to to both of those things
1: Sure. Um, so, as I mentioned, I, I was probably quite comfortable in some ways with the running, just because at least I had something that was comparable. Uh, uh, the Kuiper Harbour, as I say, is is one of the second, sign- just immense harbour. So much water that comes in and out of it. Um, I think you know, the tidal flows can, when they're when they're at peak, you know, it can be up to six to eight knots. I mean, it's just really, really fast. I think that's 12 kilometers. So it looked really, really fast. And the apprehension there was that at its narrowest point, the Kuiper harbor is still eight kilometers across. And previously, I'd been able to swim within the slack tide. And the slack tide generally lasts anything, maybe half an hour to to an hour, depending on what sort of harbor it is and how big it is. But the there's very, very little transition there. So the currents are moving all the time, and secondly, because it's eight kilometres, and even uh, uh, I'm not—I certainly wouldn't say I'm an amazing swimmer, but I'm a a competent swimmer—that was still going to take me, and as and it turned out, over two hours to do. So the apprehension there was, you've got these big currents that I knew I was going to have to face, either coming in or going out. Um, I was crossing a harbour that was renowned for its. Basically, it's great white sharks, which are incredibly amazing creatures, but you can't help but not have that instinctual fear uh, if you've watched Jaws at any one stage as a as a, as a kid. Um, and then you've got the, the the logistical aspect of that, which is you can't do that uh, by yourself without a, a support boat. Uh, it's too far, and also very even if it wasn't risky for you, even if I thought that I could do it. Uh, if anything went wrong, then I'd be jeopardizing other people's lives if, uh, you know, there had to be sort of some kind of rescue there. So there's a lot to, to get across, and I was really freaking out. I mean, even the shark side of things, I I've, I was really quite worried about that. Um, and, you know, everyone's got a, an amazing shark story in the Kaipara Harbour. So for the probably, that was on my mind, even from the get-go, is how am I going to cross this incredible bit of water? And the first way is, is starting to talk to people. So I tried to talk to the Coast Guard and, and various people. And initially I thought I was going to have to take two days to cross that harbour, um, break it in into two sections. But even that was going to be really hard. Ended up finding, coming up with a strategy that I was going to, uh, by talking with one of the, the local sort of fishermen, that I was going to try and go with the outgoing tide at least capture the out, a little bit of the outgoing tide, uh, use a bit of the slack tide and then come in with the incoming tide. But I had to get that just right because as you can imagine, if you got 12, you know, if the, if the tide's just motoring through, you could be on the bar quite quickly <laughs> if you don't time it right. But if you time it too late as well, you could end up right in the center of the harbor and, and no way of getting to the a particular point that I want. So there's, just a lot of different things that had to go just right to be able to get across. And so anyway, I obviously planned for the swimming component and I tried to talk with um, with people about sharks. For example, Riley Elliott, who's one of the, the real leading experts in, in sharks and shark behavior in New Zealand. Young guy, super good guy. And um, I think talking with him really calmed my nerves about the shark component. I think just being aware of, you know, sharks aren't just cruising around, just waiting for for people to gobble up. Like they almost exclusively only attack if there's some sort of misidentification, mis- or um, or basically all of their checkboxes are are working in terms of you know you're in a place of you know there might be you know if there were lots of seals around, like that's probably not a good place to go swimming. And and um and likewise, you know the the tides and and whether it's sunset or or dawn, like those things, you know can Im- increase the risk factor depending on where you are. So I had to kind of get a lot more knowledge about that. And with that knowledge came a lot more confidence that I was going to not have a problem with that. And uh, then on top of that, I had to find somebody with a boat to cross. Um, and one of my best mates, uh, he was in Seth's Lifesaving, and he he had a boat and, and we were we were good to go. I was really excited about having, and just really stoked that he was going to be in the water with me to make sure that I got across. And the day before, I'd actually run all the way up from Mutawai Beach up the up the coast. I think it was about 60 kilometers, 65 kilometers that day. So I was completely exhausted and I'd sort of got lost at the end. So it'd sort of been a very long day and it was turning on sunset. And uh, my phone goes and it's Craig. And he's like, mate, I've done everything I can, but my boat's basically blown up. I can't take my boat i've asked everyone i know it's coming up to auckland anniversary and there's no one else i know that's got a boat so i don't know what to do <laughs> and we didn't even have a place to stay that night and i was trying to figure out how was the following day so it was going to be on the saturday how i was going to find somebody that had a boat and was prepared to take it on kaipara and prepared to be to go across and know enough about the terrain that they weren't going to be you know, in jeopardy themselves. And, you know, I could have been at a real low point, but uh, I, I felt really just empowered to try and problem solve my way out of this. So I remember I'd met some really lovely people on the beach earlier that day. And so I rang them up and uh, certainly wasn't trying to ask for a boat, but but did meet, did kind of figure that you know, locals were probably no locals and, they let me stay the night, so we were so stoked they actually you know set me up for the night. And I did ask them if they knew of anyone that, that might have a boat, and they, they kind of mentioned that they might have a connection with the local coast guard. And um, by the morning, so this is you know this started at eight, 8 pm. Uh, by ten am on the Saturday, uh, they connected me with the, the local coast guard guy. Uh, who was a friend of theirs who also had a boat that they, he could launch from from the inside of the Kaipara. And I never met him, never spoke to him, and he was like, yeah, it sounds like a, a crazy adventure. I have no idea how you're going to do it, um, but I'll, I'll support you. And so Craig jumped in the boat with him, and, and that was my support crew. Um, and so when I got in the water, uh, I was obviously pretty apprehensive because of the distance. Uh, but also the tide was actually starting to slow and I'd expected it to keep on going out a little bit longer. So I actually had to go and get in the water uh, a bit earlier with the, because the worry was that I was not going to be able to get on the right tide and actually get pushed back into the inside of the harbour. And so I get swimming and actually, you know, uh, after a while my, I sort of calm down and, and get into the flow of things. And then she start feeling, you know, really good. So I was really sort of powering along, and I think that's about there. And I was, I looked across, I, I, I seemed to make a really good headway, and I, I just thought I must be pretty close. And I defied all expectations, and this tide was just taking me right, at, you know, quite right close to the peninsula. Um, and so I looked up at my friend Craig and, and sort of yelled at him, you know, like, Yo, how's it going? You know, how far have I got to go? And he's like, oh mate, you're going awesome. Um, you know, I was feeling pretty tired at the stage. Like, I oh, know you're going really, really well, mate. You're halfway. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it, you know, like I was I was probably about seventy percent done and yet I was only maybe half half the distance across. And so it was quite hard really to to kind of swallow that and then put the head back down in the water and, and keep on powering across. Um I mean, still in that in the back of my mind. Like while I say I was feeling confident that you know I wasn't going to be um, shark food, yeah, it was still in the back of my mind. So I didn't I didn't stop at all. Like you think even when I was talking to Craig, I was hardly trying to wait. I was <laughs> trying to keep moving across. And um, I remember at one stage I was looking at Craig because you know he, he, the boat was probably you know, fifty meters away at, at most of the time, and. I just didn't seem to be getting anywhere. You know, I, I, He told me I was halfway, and I kept on swimming, it. I just, I, just wasn't, I couldn't see that I was getting any closer. And I kept on going, just had to literally just keep on going with no real visibility on if I was getting any closer or, or what was happening. And eventually, after two hours of slogging across, I, um, I managed to just hit the Poteau Peninsula, which is the north head of the of Kaipara. And uh, I was completely exhausted. Um, and, and actually, I, I, I was wearing a shark shield, which is like a little electric sort of leash that sort of attaches to the back of your heel. And I was getting shocked um, by that as I sort of was standing on the leash. And anyway, I was a bit of a disaster. But eventually, when I sort of came to a little bit and was able to, to get my breath back and, and talk with Craig about how the adventure had sort of transpired, he was like, you know, you really did do really well for that first, uh, you know, that first hour. But then it turned out that I was actually basically just trapped in the tide. I wasn't actually moving at all for an int- for basically half an hour. I hardly moved at all. I just kept my place in the harbour um, as I sort of slogged on. And then eventually, when that tide really turned, it just sort of shot me out. And I only probably just got to the Poto Peninsula before. Yeah, I would have been probably a lot further. In the harbour, which would have been harder again, so that's how the how, yeah. And actually, it turns out that I, I became the first person um, to to swim the Kepler Harbour that I believe anyone's done. So it was a pretty amazing time.
0: It's a pretty awesome achievement, mate. Um, what was going through your head when you were stuck out there and you didn't fe- seem to be going anywhere?
1: I think for me it was important to not worry about it i think for me and i I had the had the same strategy with running as well um at the end of my journey i actually ran 100k and i had a similar kind of experience but it's just about keeping on going and not being worried about progress and just focusing on the process and what i mean by that is i just need to keep my arms going as long as my arms are going then i wasn't moving backwards and eventually I must be going forward. So at least that's how it seemed to work in my head. So I just focused on one stroke after the other. I didn't think about or worry about if I was moving forward. I just had to have that faith that eventually, if I didn't quit, the only way you know, I, w- I would make it, and, and that's, and that's what, what turned out to happen.
0: Cool. And what, what went through your head when you hit the, hit the peninsula and you had your foot on the sand?
1: Yeah, it's it was I mean, it was the hardest thing I think I've done in recent memory, which was yeah, pretty overwhelming, but just an incredible sensation as well. I think, um yeah, for the six years between the, the first run and, and finishing this one, there just hadn't been occasions where I was to to the point where I just really didn't know if I was going to make it. And there was a lot of that during that during that swim was, am I going to make it? And even before that, you know, am I going to make it? So it was overwhelming. And it just felt really empowering to have done something really, really hard and overcome all of those mental blocks, not just the, the physical ones, um, and to to accomplish something that really connected with me and I felt, felt really proud
0: about. Yeah, that's incredible, man. Um, Alex, I, I want to quickly just touch on your finish as well. So, you ran a hundred k non-stop, and to finish at Cape Reinga. Can you kind of give us a, a, a quick rundown on that? Sure.
1: So, um, I wanted to finish. I, I don't, you know, for for uh, we hadn't sort of touched on it, but actually, I had. Uh, after only three days actually injured myself um, so the first day I got to Teakamaru Bay the second day uh, I sort of I can't remember exactly where I got to but basically on the third day um, just probably only what would be 40 hours for, sorry 40 minutes drive from, from Wellington my third day of what was going to be a five uh, week adventure um, my knee blew out and uh, I had an incredible pain particularly any kind of running or or any kind of impact was just really severe uh, on the outside of my knee. And so a lot of what I'd planned sort of went out the window for a start, but also um, it meant that for the next two and a half weeks, probably it really wasn't gone even by the time I finished the run, I was dealing with with pain. And uh, fortunately, yeah, as I say, by that very last day, I'd sort of got back to a full a full run that I was going to be able to sustain. And so I wanted to finish by the five the five week window, which was going to be finishing on the Saturday. And I'd actually previously planned like you know, if everything had gone well and I'd been able to run um all of that time, I would have finished probably two or three days earlier. So I wanted to finish on the Saturday, and I wanted to do something that really felt like I had a bit of a bookend on my adventure, and it was probably, I'd always wanted to do a 100k run and felt that, you know, why uh, I didn't really feel like doing the training again. So <laughs> at 9pm on the Friday night, uh, I was in um, Ahipara, which is the very bottom end of 90 Mile Beach. Um, ironically named, it's, it's not 90 miles, obviously. Um But it was just the most beautiful sunset I think I've ever seen. It was just that roaring orange, you know, scarlet across the sky. And at 9 p.m., I started my run and knew that there was a good 12 to 15 hours of of running ahead of me. And so I ran, you know, through the night, through the entire night, just running along along the beach. Um, I had a couple of... um, little rest points where I was able to, to get, get some extra food and get some extra water and fill up on surprise, uh, supplies. But basically I ran through the whole night. And, um, I remember the first, you know, 35, 40 kilometers was, you know, was quite, you know, it wasn't actually too bad, but it's pretty hard when you've done, you know, effectively a marathon distance and still know that you've got another 60 kilometers to do. And, uh, I caught up with my friend who was, you know, support crewing me and, and had some food and, And this, like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, and then kept on going through all the way um, until six. And and really, around sort of four or five, my knee started hurting again. And I'd I'd been quite fortunate before that; I I sort of felt like I was managing the pain a lot more. And I was, by the time I actually saw my friend again at about eight o'clock, I was hardly running. I was probably more like limping or or waddling along. And I, I really didn't know what to think at that stage because I knew that I still had I was going to meet him at the 80k point and before that you know probably 70, 70 75 kilometers I was done. Um, you know I, I was hardly being able to run at all the pain was certainly coming back and I couldn't see how I was going to do an extra 25k and I saw my friend and he sort of came out like in a mirage and at this stage I was going so slow that I think he had he was meant to meet me a little bit later but it sort of decided to drive up the beach to see if he could he could spot me and by the time I saw him he was he was pretty concerned about me because I was yeah I didn't look good at all I, I hadn't eaten obviously I hadn't slept the entire night and I managed to get some food and get some some water and and it sort of struck me though I kind of realized that I only had 20k to go and it's funny you know Uh, psychology works that it's all about the relative measure rather than how many kilometers you actually have to do. So the idea of only doing 20% more, that seemed achievable. And it sort of was weird. It's just like my whole body and my brain just switched into this, you're only 20 kilometers away. You have to just keep going. And I went from that hobble and that limp um, and really found my stride again and and it was brutal. Like that last 20 kilometres went straight from like a beach to like a, a very a very hilly, very steep um, headland before uh, hitting the the lighthouse. And and while that was still super hard, and I was still really pushing myself, just that knowledge that I only had you know 20 kilometres, then 15 kilometres, then 12 kilometres, then eight kilometres, then five kilometres, and then finally there's that last massive hill up to the lighthouse which I could see ahead and you just go to that place where you just want to get it done and you just keep again that was sort of that same sort of experience I felt with the kayak just focusing on each step and and making my way up the hill and, and eventually seeing that that lighthouse and eventually being able to place my hand on the the very lighthouse I'd left 7 years ago when I left for the Cape Strait on the, the East Coast run and and finished with my family and and friends and and that was yeah, it was pretty amazing an amazing experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. How did you how did you feel when you touched the, the lighthouse?
1: It was a sense of closure, I think. It was a real sense of certainly relief. Um, but closure and, and pride and, but I think just feeling that it was finished was a pretty amazing event because particularly doing something that takes you five weeks that sense of having to push forward like every day, every day was, was another massive challenge for those, for those, you know, I think 35 days. It was, yeah, it just, it just was, again, since sort of that overwhelming uh, sense, of both pride and relief. I guess.
0: Awesome. Alex, I'm mindful of the time, mate. So we should probably start wrapping this up. Um, What's the next uncomfortable thing that you're gonna do? And why is that uncomfortable for you? I
1: um and sort of seeing this as a little bit of irony in this. Um at the end of my East Coast run, I was my 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 goal was the next adventure was the start up and what was gonna be a, a company that I started and and that was super uncomfortable for me. Um and again was sort oh. of uh, this is now six years on. Uh, I've actually joined forces with a, a really good friend of mine from um, an entrepreneurship program that I did a couple of years ago. And sort of um, combined forces with me. Um, I've got sort of you know, different skills to him. He's a he's a technologist, and we've got um, a business called LearnKey, which uh, enables language schools to be able to teach more students online and and really you know, have a have a much more global um yeah reach with live virtual classes so that's really exciting but incredibly uncomfortable again so starting any business is, is very hard it's fraught with risk there's um huge personal challenges with it um a lot of unknowns um, so yeah I think I'm pushing every uncomfortable button right now in this this new venture called learn cool
0: you still doing any uh, physical training at the moment
1: I guess no. I I think with with obvious, um, an obvious point there is I probably needed a bit of a break. Um, And I unfortunately broke my toe in karate. So (laughs) Uh, I'm at the moment a little bit of an invalid, but uh, you know, like I still have huge passion for the coast. So I'll, I think, be less focused on. Uh, an achievement, and just focusing on on keeping myself connected with nature and, and and enjoying the outdoors.
0: Alex, I've got two more questions for you, mate. But um, before I ask them, I just want to say thank you very much for for taking the time to have a chat with me today. But also thank you for inspiring me as well. Um, your your journey down the east coast was was epic, and this one was just incredible in what you have been able to achieve and kind of what you, sh- what you show you can achieve when you put your mind towards something. And and as you say, just kind of put one foot in front of the other. Um, also, you tell a great story as well, mate. So th- thank you for that. <laughs> um, Alex. So first question for you is if people want to find out more about your journey, the sustainable coastlines, and also LandCube. Where should they be going?
1: Sure. So, I think start if you want to know a little bit about this west coast journey, just find me on Facebook.com/slash/straight-to-cape. S-T-R-A-I-T to Cape, um, and that way you can you know have a look at you know this incredible country that we have, and particularly our west coast. Uh, Sustainable coastlines, uh, sustainablecoastlines.org.nz. I think um, we do such great work, and when I say we, I, I really say the operational team there is just doing fantastic work. We've just opened our new flagship education centre, and we're doing amazing work from litter education to to waterways. So, if caring about our natural environment here in New Zealand is important to you, get involved in any way you can, whether that's Donating, or actually just getting involved in some of our our plantings, or, or even a beach cleanups, and then finally, you know, with LearnCube, I mean, this is going to be an incredible journey for me as well. And I think we've got a real opportunity to not just um, help education around the world, uh, but also even in New Zealand. I would love to see LearnCube be used to particularly help our uh, refugees and, and, and new migrants when they come into our country and, and really equipping them with the language skills they need to thrive. Uh, so you can find me on, uh, that's at learncube.com and you can find me on LinkedIn or, or through my Facebook page. So look forward to meeting you.
0: Brilliant. Now, Alex, before we finish off, do you have any advice or life lessons or interesting facts to leave us with today?
1: Sure. I think one of my main messages would be to to plan, to put, put effort into plan, but not be worried about the plan. Uh, I think one of the things that I really learned was opportunities sort of come wherever they may. So you can't be too rigid about what you want to do and you have to allow yourself to be flexible and find those opportunities. And and actually maybe the message is this is that you want to you want to keep enough flexibility and enough enough of a gap in your plans to allow opportunity to creep in. That was my experience throughout the journey was leaving those opportunities for amazing people to let me into their homes um or, or support me in some way. Like leaving that little bit of space for spontaneity and and for adventure and and for just surprises to happen. So, yeah, that would be one of the more unique and, and meaningful messages that I'd like to share.
0: Alex, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Really good to catch up. There you have it, guys there's a conversation with Alex uh, I really enjoyed that one and took a whole heap out of it and I think I mean some of the stuff was his point that good luck happens when preparation meets opportunity um, so having a fla- uh, having a plan but also being flexible enough to allow opportunities to arise within that plan uh, not being so rigid that you miss out on, on doing cool stuff Um, Now, Alex is definitely someone, I think, uh, who is going to be a return guest uh, on the podcast. I'm not sure exactly what we're going to talk about yet with him, uh, but he's always doing amazing stuff. So no doubt he's got some more uncomfortable things that we can have a chat about, uh, maybe even in episode 100 again thank you guys for coming on this journey with me um, it's been been amazing the first 50 episodes and the the stuff that I've learned and what I've been able to to do and the people that I have uh, been able to chat with it's been it's been fantastic um, now if you guys know anyone that I should talk to uh, send me send me a message on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or send me an email uncomfortable is okay at gmail.com uh, I'll pop the links in the notes for the show as well so this could be someone um, that kind of inspires you uh, or it could be yourself if you've been uh, if you've been doing interesting uncomfortable things I'd love to have a chat with you about them Um Thanks for sharing this episode out. Thanks for telling your mates all about it. Um, it's been, yeah, it's been an awesome, awesome ride so far, and looking forward to to seeing where it goes. Thanks again for getting uncomfortable with me and Alex today.